Heavenly Father, we ask that by the time we leave here this evening, we may know that we have indeed listened to your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Do please sit. And uh, please find your church Bibles. They should be in the seats in front of you. I don't know how many of you have um, been here in the mornings when we've looked at the early chapters of Mark's Gospel. This is the the Sunday when we move over looking at Mark from the morning to the evenings. And quite often, as we've looked at Mark, there's been a puzzle to solve. Bits of it pop up quite a few times, but it's only when you stand back and take a kind of wide-angle lens look at it that you realize how big that puzzle is. And what I want you to do, if you'll bear with me, is to do some skipping uh, with me through the early chapters of Mark's Gospel. So uh, find your uh, Bible and turn to the beginning of Mark's Gospel on page 1002. I'm going to go through these quite quickly. But if you're the sort of person that doesn't believe the minister has just found the words in the Bible, it will be helpful if you follow. Um, It's 1003, actually. Um, Mark chapter 1 and verse 25. Be quiet, said Jesus, uh, to the spirits, that is. Chapter 1 and verse 34. Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak. Chapter 1 and verse 44, same chapter. Uh, Jesus has healed someone and says, see that you don't tell anyone. Go on to chapter 3 and verse 12. Page 1005. He gave them, this is the spirits, strict orders not to tell who he was. Chapter 5 and verse 43. Page 1008. He's uh, raised uh, a little girl up from the dead. He gave strict orders, verse 43, not to let anyone know about this. Chapter 7 and verse 36. Jesus had just performed a healing. He commanded them not to tell anyone. Chapter 8 and verse 26. Uh, Again, he's healed someone, uh, and Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village where you could tell anyone. And then finally, chapter 8 and verse 30. Uh, What about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Eight times, Jesus forbids the speaking out of his works or of his identity. But now, at this hinge point of the gospel, 16 chapters in in Mark's gospel, and 8 and 9 are a kind of hinge, we're going to begin to understand what's going on. The Jews knew what to expect of the one they called a Messiah. It means the anointed one. This one was going to be a wonder worker to release them from the bondage of the Romans. One marked out as the mighty uh, bearer of the Spirit of God, the mighty one of God, he's called. But Jesus won't allow them to identify him in that way. If, he's, if they're going to set him on this pedestal of Messiah, that's not going to help him. 
And for one simple reason, not because he's not the Messiah, but because he's not that kind of Messiah. And in chapter 8, we begin to see more clearly what that means. As I said, in verse 30, Jesus warns them, don't tell anyone about this. And that's the last warning. And it's given after he himself poses the question, well, folks, uh, you're my closest friends. Who do you say I am? It's Peter who gets it right. You're the Messiah. So far, so good. We've had this uh, procession of people being told, don't say anything. And then we get this climax from Peter. You are the Messiah. So far, so good, but then it all goes horribly wrong. Jesus warns them, and he starts to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer, verse 31, and be killed. And Peter shows how little he really understands the word Messiah, because he starts to rebuke Jesus. No, you can't suffer. Then Jesus rebukes him. You just don't get it, do you, Peter? So he gathers the whole crowd, and as, as Mark pointed out, Mark was preaching on this passage this morning, the earlier passage in chapter 8. Jesus teaches them that for every follower of his, there's only one path. It's not a kind of graduated path that you're a kind of uh, you know, GCSE follower, and you're an A-level follower, and oh, whoa, you've got a degree. It's not it doesn't work like that. There's one path for every follower. It's the way of the cross, the path of suffering. And the rest of the gospel from now on is going to follow Jesus to the cross. But if that's the case, if we've had all this expectation of glory that's then turned on its head, and Jesus teaches them about suffering, and from now on it's on the way to the cross, what is going on in this episode that we heard today? What we call the transfiguration. This sudden episode of glory. It doesn't seem to fit. Well, perhaps the idea, and there's something to this, is that it's a a picture of life as suffering that Jesus has talked about, and then glory. He tells them about the suffering ahead of of a little picture of the glory to come. And that's what's meant by the appearance of these prophets. I don't know how much of the uh, Olympics you've watched in the last uh, few weeks. There are a few um, uh, sports, I have to say, I find staggeringly dull in the Olympics. Um, And because the medal ceremonies take place quite late in their day, I've seen very few. But we know what a medal ceremony looks like. There's the bronze uh, person steps up and then the silver person steps up. And that's kind of what's going on here. Uh, Moses is the one who represents the Old Testament and all God's revealing of himself in the past. But then there's a silver medal for Elijah, who isn't such a big deal for us, but by the time of Jesus, Elijah had become this huge figure of expectation, the one who was going to announce the Messiah. The time is near. Both of them are there now on the podium, as it were, to bear witness to the one to whom they'd always really pointed, the man at the head of the podium, the Messiah himself in glory. And that's kind of reinforced towards the end of the reading that we had. The disciples are puzzled with all that's gone on after the vision has faded, and they say, well, 
what, after you've explained this, I still don't, we still don't understand, where is Elijah? Well, says Jesus, the forerunner did come and did restore all things. The forerunner pointed to sin and repentance, and then that we kind of, we think, oh, yeah, okay, this, this is clearly John the Baptist. But they killed him, says Jesus. Why? Well, because it's the pattern. The Son of Man will be rejected and will suffer, and so that's the way it's going to be with his followers and his heralds. Now, there is something in that. That idea that there is something of suffering in life, and then there is glory. One of those who's there at this transfiguration, John, goes on much later to write a book. And he writes there in Revelation of the day, when every tear will be wiped away, when mourning and crying will be over, and when all that there is will be joy. So there's something in it, suffering, then glory. But I don't think that gives full weight to what actually happens. Moses and Elijah bear witness, but the most important voice is the voice of God himself saying, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Listen. And I actually wonder whether that's what planted a seed thought in the mind of John, who was there. A seed thought that grew and bore fruit eventually. As that reading we know so well from Christmas, the word became flesh. Listen. Says, says the voice of Jesus. The voice about Jesus, that is. When the deepest truth, in other words, of who Jesus is, is revealed, witnessed to by Moses, witnessed to by Elijah, witnessed to by the voice, when the deepest truth is revealed, the deepest response God calls for is just this, listen. I wonder how, that, how they heard that. There are other reports of, of what, uh, in the Gospels of what Peter does at that moment. He tries to, to freeze frame it, to, to press the pause button and say, oh, it's great we're here, let's just kind of stop, let's just enjoy this. Excuse my voice, I was um, uh, shouting rather enthusiastically at some sports yesterday. Um, uh, let's, ju- let's just freeze all this and, 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 and keep things the way they are. But no, it's as though Jesus says to them afterwards, look, you saw that, but don't go telling anyone. Let you, it faded away. Just let it fade. Let it fade, but you can always listen. You won't always see his glory. You will see him bloody on a cross, not at all looking glorious, but it doesn't matter because you can always listen. And let me try and explain why that matters, because there's always been those in the church of God, right back to the first century, those who say, look, isn't this great? Jesus suffered, so you don't have to. You are to live in his glory and power. Suffering is for losers, or it's their fault. The glory of heaven is there for you to walk in now. And then there are terrible tensions when it all collapses. And those are, if you like, the tiggers of the church. 
But others in response become Eeyores and say, don't bother getting excited. It's all about suffering now because Jesus said so. This is the way of the cross. Don't expect a party. Joy only comes with a future life. And it may be important to say that that's wrong too. I think it does matter that we pull these things together. We've only recently had a set of sermons in Ecclesiastes. And can we really say nothing more when we've read the Gospels than we could say from Ecclesiastes? Sometimes life's good, sometimes it's rubbish. You can't tell which it's going to be, so just get on with things. We've got to go into tomorrow, to school, to college, to work, to family life, whatever it may be. And some of us here, if it's a regular Sunday congregation, are not yet followers of Christ. You may be thinking about it. That may be why you're here. And you want to know, what kind of life can I expect God to hand out to me? It's going to be suffering. Is it going to be glory? What kind of mix? Is it one, then the other? How do they relate to each other? Well, those of us who are in Christ don't do him any favors if we start to think about following him on the way of the cross as fundamentally what we do. Because this stepping down into the situation of others to love them, it's not just what God does, it's what God is. The cross is in one way, simply showing us God's own deepest character, a character that he doesn't, as it were, throw away when the cross is over. In that revelation from St. John, the Lamb of God is pictured on the throne of heaven, but he still has the scars of the cross upon his body. God doesn't throw suffering away. And being a disciple means growing into the character of Jesus. We are free, we say. So we are. But so was Jesus, and he chose to serve. We are powerful, we say, and so we are. But so was Jesus, and he employed his power to let himself, as it were, do weakness. We are promised life in fullness from Jesus. Presumably, that's what he lived, but he died. And we die to ourselves every day. And it's all there in that word, listen. Listen and follow. You want the glory of being my son or my daughter? You want to hear me say of you, whom I love? Janet, whom I love. Martin, whom I love. Rachel, whom I love. Alex, whom I love. Then listen. It's not either suffering or glory. It's not even just one, then the other. One of the hardest things to get through our heads is that the Jesus-shaped, cross-shaped life is glory. Glory is nothing but the dazzling revealing of God's approval of a life lived out having listened to Jesus. Let me say one thing about this listening business. Because it came to them when there were three of them together with Jesus. Now, no doubt, those of us who um, have any kind of life 
personally before God. We read our Bibles and we pray. Interestingly, we're told to pray alone in our closet to to kind of go off into a corner because there's things we'll want to say to God that we don't want anyone else to hear. It's not said about listening to God. From Scripture, you'd have to observe that listening to God is perhaps first and foremost public. I've got a friend. I've got a few, but this is the one that's relevant. He stopped coming to church about six years ago. I should say it's not this one. He does occasionally pick up a Bible and read a bit. But life is very far from God's path. He gave up church for reasons that any of us could understand. Christians annoyed him. There was in his church a particularly dreary atmosphere. But in the process, and this is where he's wandered, he also gave up being parked in front of someone reading aloud the word of God and someone else explaining it. He's never really liked that bit, that bit of almost literally sitting under the word of God which carries the voice of Jesus behind it. He never liked the sense of nowhere to escape, having to do something about it. Now, we who preach are acutely conscious of how often we preach less well than we'd have liked. And because of that, we may not always do a good job of defending being here to listen to the word of God and hear the word of God preached. And it can happen for all kinds of reasons that we drift off. Life has got busy for many people in our generation. People have two jobs. The weekend becomes very precious. Many churches report that keen Christian people are often now in that particular church only one Sunday in three. We feel regular because church is what we do when we are free to do it. But our actual being there slides. Now, I know how easy it is for me day by day when I open my Bible, I read and I think I've attended to it. But there is something different about being among a group of my brothers and sisters, listening to Christ speak his word. And that's the old as much as the New Testament, of course. Listening to what Christ says to me as his word is preached. I listen and my feet are drawn back again to the path that is following Jesus on the way of the cross. The path that was named, was the path that was followed by the person here named as my son whom I love. I don't suppose many of us really thought that life was supposed to be all glory and no suffering. We know better. But we may have got confused about the relationship thinking that somehow uh, there's all this love stuff, all this suffering, all this way of the cross stuff. This is something we do. We kind of got to do that. But something else better is coming. Instead of which, this revealing of Jesus' glory, so soon after he's told us about suffering and is going to go on to suffering, this revealing tells us that the life of submitting to him, obeying him, listening to him, even when suffering comes, that is the life of glory. 
The suffering of Jesus isn't something that happens. The cross isn't just something that happens. It's a signal of the very character of God to stoop down that far simply out of love for you and for me. Glory does not follow suffering. It comes as we listen to a suffering Jesus and follow him. We're free but to serve. We enjoy life in fullness, but we lay it down. And nothing is so glorious for you. Let me end by making it clear. Nothing will be so glorious for you as living a life that looks like the one that Jesus lived. Let's pray. In a moment of quiet, when you listen to the Jesus who tells you to pick up your cross and follow him, who points out that it's the norm for the prophets to be rejected and to suffer, when you listen to that message from Jesus, where in the landscape of your spirit does resistance arise? There's a special prayer of today in the life of the Church of England that talks about the mystery of Christ's sufferings. And Lord God, there are mysteries here. We could understand it if suffering and glory were separated. But in ways that we don't understand in our heads, it seems to be true that it's in the following of Jesus with whatever suffering comes that your glory is made known. We're not really sure we like that. And we find resistance within us, within us. Please be at work within us and upon us. Give us grace, open our ears to listen to Jesus, that in following him, we may, might discover for ourselves what glory looks like. Amen.